Warm and Jekka and welcome to Empavilion. We are here tonight for our third consortium talk. Um, we've been working on this consortium for a while. It started as, a, as an invitation for arts organisations to use our space um, and ended up being a consortium of arts organisations and the design hub um, to discuss the current issues that are, that are facing the arts industry. Tonight we're having a special segment that is about the current exhibition that's on at RMIT Design Hub. And I will pass over to Nella to tell you all about it. Thanks, Jessie. Hi, everyone, and welcome. My name's Nella Thamelios. I'm the creative producer at RMIT Design Hub. And I'm gonna give you just a very brief um, introduction before I hand over to John Dee and Charles to lead tonight's discussion. But the focus for tonight's discussion lies in the gallery or project rooms as a space for risk-taking, play, and speculation. To what extent is new technology allowing different modes of experimentation and how might this change the role of the artists and audience alike? Indeed, our overarching remit at Design Hub is to operate less like a traditional gallery and more as a site for testing and experimentation. Um, as such, our exhibition program is, desi is designed to perform design ideas and invites the audience to take an active part within the research process. Tonight we'll be addressing the question of risk-taking and testing within gallery spaces by looking in depth at our current exhibition, Techniques and Touch, Body, Matter, Machine. Um, this is a project developed by artist and arts academic John D. Keane and landscape architect Charles Anderson, who will lead the discussion as I mentioned before. Techniques and Touch is a highly experimental project that explores the, working, the creative working relationships between robots and humans through the simple activity of drawing together. Um, the project tests methods of producing feedback systems through perception and action cycles, which allow a creative collaboration to take place between a human actor and a robot. Charles and John Dee are in residence at Design Hub, working with programmers from RMIT's Architecture Robotics Lab to develop and test various drawing interactions um, with one of our resident robots at Design Hub. Using this temporary lab as a springboard, Charles and John Dee, along with their guests tonight, Pia Edney-Brown, Roland Schnooks and Jules Rutten, will explore the implications of their research, both for creative practice, as well as the institutional spaces that mediate such practices. Additionally, all of you here tonight will be an integral part of the evening by taking part in a group exercise, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll see if more people arrive. Um, that will reveal and activate the key ideas within the show. We also have imagery on an iPad um, uh, that uh, documents the exhibition at Design Hub that you're all very welcome to have a look at as, as our speakers are uh, talking. And I just want to conclude by saying that Design Hub is free and open to all and you can join us each day for a conversation or take part in a drawing between the robots and the residents and literally see the exhibition taking shape within um, this kind of testing lab that we've, we've set up in our project spaces. So without further delay, I'd like to invite Charles and John Dee to uh, begin tonight's conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, I don't really know how, how this is going to work, to be honest, because there's probably more up here than down there. So um, what do you think? Do you think we should just talk or um, questions? Um, we had 
thought we'd have a conversation with our audience, but I don't think that's really going to happen. So we can just talk uh, ad liberally about what we're trying to do, I guess, but most of you actually know what we're going to do, so it's a bit weird, I have to say. Um, so one of the important things that has been coming up for us for the show is really more about when we talk about robotics and when I um, say oh, I'm working on a robotic show, people tend to think of robots and, every, <clears throat> and they would say, oh, Charles, I didn't know you were interested in robots. But what's really happening in the in the gallery space, I think, is what we like to call a conversation. Um, that's why we're hoping to have a conversation with an audience, is that it's not so much about um, increasing or exploring and developing the autonomy of robotic systems. It's actually developing and thinking about the creative space that exists between humans and non-humans, or between humans and technology. So what we're, what's going on, as well as learning a bit of programming and we're actually refining some of the programming that's going into the robotics, we're actually setting up the exhibition space to be this space that appears in a relationship between humans and technology, or humans and robots in this case, thinking together. Would you agree, John D? <laughs> yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And I guess the, the feedback is the, is the particular focus of this, so developing specific feedback systems that have to do with sensory feedback in real-time situations. So Charles and I have both had um, drawing practices for a long time that are based on that kind of self-feedback system. So it's quite interesting to put it in relationship to a technology that can feedback and you have to figure out the system of thinking that went into the production of that feedback. So hopefully the very specific and pragmatic um, aspect that might come out of this, and, and hopefully Roland and, and Jules uh, and Pia will talk about this a little bit, would be um, how to inform programmers um, ways of setting up a relationship that would inf inform the way that programs get developed. So that's one aspect. But increasingly, with even just the small time that we spent with the, the robots, there's a material aspect to the robot itself that's not, that doesn't have to do with the programming, but has to do with the material aspect of the robot. And this is what's proving the most interesting, that there are, are idiosyncratic aspects to the way the robot moves and makes decisions about how it um, enacts the program that are quite strange. And this seems to be the gap between human inputs programming and then material agency, to, to have a lack of a better word. So it's not to be mysterious material agency, it's just to say that the robot actually has to figure out how it, in its axes, moves from one place to another. And the way that it does that is quite unusual. And as far as I can tell, Jules and, and Chris, you, you can't figure out how that's that's actually happening. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, a lot of that happens um due to certain desires of the axes wanting to be around their um, natural medium. Desires? So, well, yeah, well, it, <laughs> you need to make sure that each axis isn't going to go to its limit. And so right. you just try and force it wherever possible to stay around zero, where it can go positive 100 degrees and negative 100 degrees. And so in certain scenarios, as it's moving, if two axes overlap, that's when it starts to unwind its own motion and go back to zero. And so a lot of the different behaviours can just be a product of these 
um, limit functions for it to go to zero. So you're talking about this wonderful world's word singularity, right? Mm. Is that right? So singularity is just when all the axes line up, and that's what you mean by zero. So any any angle off of that is plus or minus zero. Um, yeah, definitely. Right, and if it's at singularity, it can't make a decision about which way to move. Is that well, and it also allows um, more freedom in the motion that it can now unwind um, its axes because as it's moving around, as it might go up for a drawing and then come across and back to home and up to a drawing and come across and back to home, sometimes the axes can accumulate and so as oh. it's winding the paintbrush, always in a clockwise motion, it's not coming 100% back oh, yeah. counterclockwise. And so you can accumulate um, uh, your degrees until you hit the limits. And so to, to help relieve this, when it hits singularity, then it's allowed to move two axes independently, and that's where it can unwind and have different sort of quirks and behaviours. But that doesn't explain this weird thing of what it's doing to get there. Like, it's... Mm. it's starting to do these weird things where it'll there's a pot of ink and paint yeah and there's a piece of paper on the wall and it moves to the pot of paint and it doesn't dip its brush in the paint and it moves back and then it moves over and dips its brush and then it goes up and it makes a dab on the wall and yeah. then it retreats and then it starts to draw what we've drawn yeah and we can't figure out why that's the case do you do you know roland why this is the case stage fright <laughs> uh, maybe stage fright yeah. i mean no i mean i guess it's like um some redundancy that's built into the, mm. the code. It's, I mean, robots tend to, after they finish a program, go back to a home mm. position. So it's probably going back to home and then starting a program which tends to go mm. via home as well. So oh, yeah. that sort of redundancy is probably built in. And as far as there's a few different levels of the brain and a communication in between, and it could be a mix-up between the highest level saying go to the, get some paint and then draw on the wall and then it's sending certain commands and a check saying, yes, it has done it, when, in fact, it hasn't. Um, oh, and right. so it could be little... But I think, I think one of the things that's mm. coming out of this conversation is that mm. there's two levels of behaviour within the robot. Mm. There's um, the behaviour um, of the robot that produces some type of characteristic of thing that it makes. So whether mm -hmm. it's a drawing or in the work that I'm doing, it's in you know, things it's bending or extruding or casting. Um, but then there's the behaviour of it in the way that it moves as a performance in itself. And I think that's one of the, one of the things about watching a robot work is that generally the thing it's doing is incredibly slow and tedious and mundane, mm. but there's something incredibly... Um, like, you can just watch a robot 3D print <laughs> for like hours, and I, I, I know it's a really boring thing, but well, somehow yeah. it's, it's, there's something just beautiful about the motion of these well, things. Well, we really noticed that, um, particularly at the opening, is that um, the robot could be doing <coughs> almost nothing, but people were completely transfixed. Mm -hmm. So it leads to sort of, wider, sort of wider observation that, that people seem to have, or seem to be transfixed by autonomous systems. And I kept on thinking about the history of um, uh, perpetual motion machines throughout mm -hmm. the last few hundred years, that people are just fascinated by machines that seem to work by themselves. And this is kind of transferred into robotics where <coughs> something in human beings seem to be um, completely sort of uh, captured by a seem machine seeming to move by itself. Um, That's automatons too, isn't it? And yeah. I mean, Pia, you would be interested in this because we've just today, I think Kate helped us name the robot. We've been <laughs> wanting to name the robot. 
and it's it's called a kuka because that's the brand name. But um, you suggested it was a little baby elephant because of the way it moved. <laughs> so we, we decided to maybe call it Ella. But Pia, you've been interested in this idea of breaking down the the divide between human non-human by anthropomorphizing. Yeah, well, it seems um, one of the interesting things to me about the project is that the robot suddenly most explicitly becomes something that's not um, simply an instrument for something mm. else. Mm. It's, it's, mm. A, it's a thing that we're watching. And in prior projects where I've seen the robot, like for instance, in a, I think last year there was a rod bending project, that um, when the robots weren't bending the rods, when in fact when there was no rods there, they were still going through the motion <laughs> of bending the rods. So they were miming the action. And that's when it was totally transfixing to, to watch that. Like, it was so beautiful. Everyone was videoing it. And it's a thing of watching something think. And it, it seems to be doing something very precise and very deliberate and very actually very elegant. And, um, and you can watch that elegance and that precision unfolding in front of you um, in a machine. So it's a version of thought. It's, it does seem to me to be... Um, a version of thinking and we sort of enter into that thinking with it somehow mm. and the feeling of that thinking you know when you're really precisely thinking something through because it is um, it's following mm. commands so it's not it doesn't have its own internal feedback loops in the same way but it does have it, it, it sort of veers towards that and I mm. oh yeah I mean I just think that this project it kind of becomes interesting because the robot becomes a thing unto itself. Well, it starts to, I mean, Johnny was In talking about, but it, it starts to exhibit behaviours that are kind of unexpected. Um, yeah, the dabbing. Yeah, the dabbing mm. is, yeah. why is it doing that? <laughs> and the, and the, the, double, the, the, the double dip. Yeah. Um, there are various behaviours. And yeah. it's amazing that as it's drawing or as it's performing, you have these hopes for it to do things, do things in a certain way and then it just behaves a way that you just don't expect it to or want it to and it lets you down and then it does it again and it does it beautifully the second time and again you sort of have these emotional connections with it as it's performing or unperforming. And I, I think some of those, um, those unexpected things mm. are, are incredibly productive and I think that's really evident in, um, in Gwil's project mm -hmm. um, and, the, and that was basically about um, I guess a limitation of the server in a way mm. it was a limitation of the software which meant that um, the robot was accelerating and decelerating effectively too quickly and stuttering. Yeah. And so through this constant stuttering, it would make these, um, a different type of line. So it's trying to draw a smooth line, but it ends up drawing a much more interesting yeah. sort of dashed line. Yeah. Well, we've had a number of uh, observations that, um, by people who've come along that, that the robot's drawings are far better than our drawings. <laughs> <laughs> And but they've been using a, a very interesting phrase that a couple of people have used, and that they've said that the robot's drawings are far more expressive than our drawings. So it poses the question: What do they mean by that? Like, how? <coughs> what? What? What is? Can you? What is going on to say that a robot is being more expressive than us? Like, what's it being expressive of? So. Well, it's yeah. it's interesting that you say that because I was thinking when we were talking about the. Um, the movements of the robots, that it is very much like watching contemporary dance. dance yeah. You are watching something moving in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense to you in a, in a procedural sense, mm. ironically. 
but is nevertheless... Um, but it's utterly procedural. Utterly procedural yeah, yeah. And, and utterly kind of um, beautiful. Maybe the, um, the, the difference in expression has got to do with the fact that um, when the two of you are drawing lines, you're constantly editing the line you're drawing because you're looking at it, the line as you mm -hmm. draw it. Yep. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about this um, project and the exhibition you've put on is that um, it's a system in which there is a feedback between a vision system and a robot, which is unusual. And it's something that's only really now emerging in a lot of this work with industrial robots. And so normally a robot draws something and draws it blind, so it can't edit it as it goes. Mm. So all it's doing is expressing the internal logic of whatever the program was, whereas that's quite different to what you're doing. Yeah. But now you have a robot which is not no longer blind, um, but it closes its eyes. So it looks, um, it closes its eyes and then draws a line with its eyes closed <laughs> and then looks again. Yeah, right. So I think it would be really interesting to see what happens is <laughs> when, and I think this is, I mean, the... The software is set up such they can do this so that it can have real-time feedback rather than sequential feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So then you're allowing the robot... What happens when you allow the robot to keep its eyes open when it draws? Yeah. Yeah. Does it draw more like you? When we were talking about this, the, we were thinking that one of the reasons um, that the robot's drawings were more expressive was that um, our drawings, as you say, we're, we've learnt how to control the, the medium. So there's a constant feedback at a very fine level between sort of muscles, <coughs> the medium, the, the ink, the brush. And so in the intent to draw a circle, for example, we, we have a very finely tuned feedback system. Mm. But when the robot is doing it, it, it doesn't have any of that. So it's what is read as expression is kind of like lack of control, if you like, for uh, over the fine, sort of fine muscle movement or thinking. So it, it, it just... It's got a big brush full of ink, and it will just do what it's supposed to do, but the, it can't control what's going on. So, which is pretty much what we're thinking about, the, like the masters of flung ink drawings or Zen drawings, actually learning to uncontrol um, in a particular way. So you, you get the, um, you draw in such a way that it releases the potential of chance and happenstance. Yeah, there's also the thing that the robot's indifferent to the variation that produces from the material, so this very long brush with ink, it, it doesn't care that it's yeah. pushing it along and that the brush is actually moving in different ways, and that produces an expressiveness through variation. Whereas yeah. also, I mean, with artists who, who would draw lines, if you do that for 20 years, you empty out the expressiveness, and that's the purpose of the drawing of the line. So there's a funny inversion crossover between the robot and us. So we're, we're in, you know, we're emptying out the expressiveness, and they're indifferent to the expressiveness, which is why it appears. So, you know, there's this also this thing now of coming back to the museum as as a risk-taking place. You know, there is an aspect to this where we're setting up something that we don't know that what's going to happen, and that's a very nice uh, position to be in to be given a place that's a laboratory space that has several stations to be set up that has a a programmer that can work and talk to the robot and, and make adjustments and to allow something to emerge that is a, a conversation that you don't know the ending for. And so, you know, I think that's very lovely and, and I'd like to thank RMIT for allowing that kind of space to happen because, you know, there are experimental spaces around the world and you can name them and you can associate, you know, when people give over a museum to be the medium for a person's work and it there is still a finishedness about them. There isn't the ongoingness of an open, an open-ended thing. So I think that that's quite an important in terms of 
what's being asked to be talked about here today and the way that the, the program has been set up. So, I don't know, uh, in terms of conversation, I mean, we have a limited amount of people, and but are there any observations or questions? Like, do you want to know, <coughs> can you if ask us what the hell's going on and we can be more, more specific <laughs> about what's actually going on in the space or if there's some, some observations you have about robotics or in, in general? We have some masters of robotics mm. over here and we're just pure amateurs. Um, <laughs> Are there any questions or observations? And yeah. and the mic. Yeah, you know, Nell is going to ask a question. And then, and <laughs> and, yeah. My my question goes back to I guess the um, the broader context of the discussion about the gallery as a kind of site for testing and experimentation. By its very nature, it's a very public space. So I'm wondering. Uh, what, how you see, what role you see the audience playing in, in, in the way you've set up the project and is there a role for them and, um, in, in a project like this which is um, yeah, highly risky and, and, and is, you, know, you don't know the answer so how do you kind of find ways to engage um, or why is that important I guess as part of this project? Well, um, the audience are part of the the authors, if you like. I mean, it's part of, I guess, an ongoing um, thinking about the, the nature of authorship um, in art, but also in design, uh, particularly when you're working with uh, computation or anything like that. But so the offer is for um, the, anyone in the audience to come along and have a conversation um, with us about what's going on and when the robot is actually working to come and uh, experiment with the robot and uh, have a conversation with the robot and with us. And I think so it's, it's really about the, the nature of collaborative uh, making um, and um, sort, of em sort of emergent making that happens in conversation with others and, and, and unexpectedness that comes with that and uh, insights from other people. So that's part of the reason why you do something like this in a public venue. Um, John, did you...? I guess yeah. the, the, the public um, sessions that we have on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons are also quite important. I mean, there is the aspect where it's Charles and I doing them, and I suppose we could have opened that up to other people making drawings with that. I, don't, I think that maybe that's perhaps the next iteration when these things are developed more. But the, the public conversations are the, the desire to have naive questions that that can be asked in a safe environment where the idea is to make that connection. So the question like, what does it mean for a robot to close its eyes, is a very interesting question, you know? Um, and there's funny things about the way that the, the robot has to operate, that um, it either has perfect memory or it has no memory at all, whereas we function so directly on, on short-term memory. So, for example, it either remembers exactly what it did before and redoes it in using different parameters, or it has no memory of what it does and it only is in the moment that it's, that it's dealing with. So these kind of things about how, I mean, robot thinking is our thinking, right? So how is it that we're, we're talking to ourselves in some respect? Um, and I find this odd that there is such this strange divide with this thing in the middle called the robot that, that's mirroring this other language and then these things that we're projecting onto it. So perhaps this is the space, 
these Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons when people can come and ask the question that they've been wanting to ask because that opens up the way of thinking uh, around how that can be developed. I guess that's, for me, the, an important sort of point for that. Yeah, certainly when we, when we were uh, developing the idea, it was the idea of naive questions. I, I'd put it like, st like apparently stupid questions. <laughs> you know, like what it <clears throat> and it's also doing very, very simple things. Like we're really aware that there's far more complex um, and advanced things going on with robotics, but it's, so it seems kind of like sort of fatuous in a funny sort of way, but we're, uh, we're really just asking the robot to try and draw a what, what is it to draw a straight line or a circle? But actually, when you when you actually come to do that, it's kind of like becomes a bottomless pit. You actually come up with some very interesting, but you know, seemingly silly questions, but actually mm. questions that are quite profound about how you, like for instance, are you tracing an idea of it? Like when we're drawing something, yeah. are you actually tracing an idea that you have in your head? Are you trying to remember something? So really basic things about what it is to what the activity is to draw, I think. So, and then asking the robot to actually do engage with that is another level entirely, I guess. Who did you have? going to ask something. Hi. Hi. Um, my question is not quite fully formed, but I, I guess I was interested um, at the start of the talk, Charles, you said it was, um, you were looking at your input as a human and then a computer's output and how you've sort of been exploring that throughout your careers, I guess. Um, and now it's come to the point where it's actual robots. But I guess my question sort of dips into what like the world out there is doing now in terms of computer <coughs> programs and other things. And yeah, like I said, not a quite formed question, but do you know what I mean? Like, what's your experience with other technologies and how has that shaped your interaction with the current robots? Well, um, on a simple level, like the thing about technology is that a pencil is a bit of technology. So when I when I when I was thinking about the the creative potential between humans and non-humans, um, I actually mean it can be is it's humans, but also the non-human is matter or other things. So so the conversation that you have between a pencil and yourself or yourself, the pencil and the piece of paper or the surface you're writing on is exactly the same thing as what we're doing. It just so happens that the other thing that we're working with is this robotic system. So so in this case it's the relationship between humans and software and hardware um, and the, the actual um, environment that both of those things, all, all those things are in, so it's that particular space. So, I mean, my <coughs> on a pragmatic level, my, my experience with robots is about a year old, or six months, or whatever, And but the relationship between uh, thinking about technology and humans is kind of like as long as, you know, you've been using a, a pencil or a knife and fork or putting on shoes or, yeah. I, get, I mean, I'm interested in it almost from a, a purely meditative aspect, almost like a, an abstraction <coughs> idea. So for me, you enter into a system and it can become more and more and more refined. So I have a friend who spent a month in an online blog debating whether the, the length of the cord from the tuner to the amplifier affected the sound of the music. And apparently, 
Lots of people had opinions about this. That yes, it did. No, it didn't. It and the link three meters, one meter, five meters. You know, no, oh, no, don't do five meters. This was really serious online discussion about that. So my point is that you enter into the system and you become more and more refined about hearing differences, and that these wind in on themselves. So that you can look at a wall and the wall continues to open up, that there's a pencil mark, that there's imperfections, that suddenly the wall can open to an infinity of experience. And I'm interested in entering into any system that helps me refine my ability to do that and then can feed back into that system. And the robot is perfect for this because it has infinite capacity. It can, it can draw a perfect line if, if told to, it can, it can make, and it can do it the same one every time, whereas I can't. But what, what we seem to be doing is allowing there to be these sort of differences where there is what I guess we're calling, for sake of lack of a better word, robot interpretation. It has to, in we're setting parameters where it interprets something and that these interpretations reflect upon the way that it might solve a task to a certain degree of refinement. But does it need to? Is there a point at which it doesn't really matter if it's you know, the nth degree or the nth minus one degree, I don't, I don't know. So, so in a funny way, getting into the tangle of that thought is, what, is what's interesting. <laughs> Whereas, thinking about that, I, I think my approach is the same, but almost the opposite. It's not about refinement, so to speak. It's actually about um, how to uh, engage with uh, open-endedness open and unexpectedness. So, the, and rule-based, you know, the algorithm is a really interesting way of um, working that out because, again, it decenters authorship, but also it, if you follow um, a rule set, you can end up in places that you didn't, you couldn't expect beforehand. And I always, I think about um, very old things like form in poetry, for example, that if you have the, a, <coughs> like a, a rhyming pentameter format is actually a rule-based form of creation. But if you have to follow, if you have to rhyme at the, at the end of every second line of a piece of poetry, then it means you actually have, you find yourself in a place that you didn't know when you started. And it actually means, in a funny sort of way, it allows you to think what's not non-thinkable at the start. So it's a way of thinking outside the box or making, making disco real discoveries. And I think that's, that's something that's going on with robot, actually, to set up that, that relationship <coughs> um, between your, yourself and a, a computational system mm. allows something to appear that you have no way of actually predicting in the f beforehand, and it, it's really fertile place. So that's that's yeah. Because you guys are thinking always about the generative nature of these of these systems, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think my attitude is probably somewhat similar to um, to Charles in that uh, I guess my background has come through uh, algorithmic work, mm. which is obviously um, a system which has its own internal consistent logic. Um, and through that internal consistent logic, it produces um, some type of behavior well, that arises or emerges from that. And so I think probably my interest in um, technologies that cross over or you know, the different technologies I've engaged with, uh, algorithms work through generating an emergent consistent, well, an emergent behavior from a consistent system. Um, in robotics, to some extent, do as well. but to me, the interest in robotics is the way it then allows us to engage with other systems which are internally consistent and have their own emergent behavior, and material is one of those. And so I think what's most interesting about the, um, the real-time 
robotics work is that you're able to get digital algorithms and material behavior, so let's say computational behavior and material behavior operating simultaneously. And I think that, um, I mean, that, to me, that's where the that's where my interest is in this work. Mm. It's um, how do you get those two operating in such a way that the digital needs to know nothing about the physical, and of course the physical knows nothing of the digital, um, but it's a way that they can respond at such a frequency that they'll end up hybridizing. And I think this, to me, that's, I mean, this is, and this is basically the project that Gwil and I are undertaking. It's like, how do you get a closeness between the, the digital and the physical um, behavior? And, and what might that, that generate? But it's even more than that. It's it's the digital, the physical, and for want of a better word, the intentional. Because you've got it's a it, there's like a a system of human thought that feeds into these other systems. I mean, there's it's it's starting to. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I think, when you were talking about the pencil, Charles, is that. We had a habit. We've had a habit for a long time of thinking about things as tools. Pencil is a tool, like other things, and a lot of these technologies become tools. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, we thought that that was what made us as humans special, because animals, for instance, didn't use tools. Which, of course, we but know now that they do, and that tools don't make us special. Um, but the robot allows us to reflect back on the pencil to realise that there is something more autonomous about the tool than we originally gave it. So the, the robot and, and the way in which it combines many, many systems to create a new complexity, uh, or a new explicit complexity, I should say, then allows us to come back to the pencil and go, well, actually, it was a bit more than a tool. <laughs> it, had, it was a collaborator. It, it was a collaborator, <laughs> yeah. and it allowed us to realise things that we didn't realise, we couldn't have realised without yeah. it, yeah. in the same way that paper, as a flat thing, has has actually shaped architecture for a very long time into flat things. Mm. Um, <laughs> we seem to be starting to get over that. <laughs> but these, the agency yeah. of these characters yeah. in the ecology of making and thinking and being in the world um, is profound. Um, and maybe the robots are helping us to sort of, well, these kinds of exercises yeah. bring that out of the shadows, I suppose, yeah. a little bit. Jules, you're really good at talking to the robot. You seem to <laughs> understand very well. That's yeah. a, it's, how do you, you know, because you really do, you think you have to put yourself <coughs> in a position of thinking that way. How, mm. Maybe talk about that a well, little bit. Well, it definitely is procedural in a lot of ways. And, um, and it does certain things because of uh, the physical world. I mean, it has to have the robot in a, in a certain shape to have a and to have the tip in a certain location. And so matching up the software procedures with the physical procedures of what a six degree arm can form, um, just knowing that so intimately, I guess, is where you can anticipate what it's going to be doing and how it can be moving. And it's, it's a very funny inverted logic because um, it's all described by inverse kinematics. Mm. And so inverse kinematics is basically where you're saying, I want the tip to be here, and therefore, how do I work backwards to work out what is happening here, here, here? Mm. Um, and mm. so it's actually always about the uh, um, the designer mm. or the artist might mm. want might just be interested in what the tip is doing, but then you are interested in everything else 
after well, you, that. And you need to know um, what orientation is it, otherwise you've got an infinite scenario where the robot could be in any which position. Like if I have my hand on my knee, my whole arm can move around, but the tip is still at the tip. And by just saying, well, move the tip to the knee, um, you're not giving enough information to command the robot, and without having a very complex algorithm to, for the robot to know, okay, I only need this bit of information so I can just make up the rest. How it makes up the rest is a rather complex task. And which leads to its kind of esoteric behaviour. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. so on that, is it, is it really... Uh, are, are we um, amateurs in the field just uh, projecting kind of fanciful notions on it? But uh, when it's actually seeming to behave, like doing the dab that we don't understand or making the... Is it, is it really... Well, uh, undecided behaviour. Is it really an emergent behaviour of the machine, or is it, is it somewhere in the program that it's actually driving that? It has to be somewhere in the program right. that is driving that right. um, in some form, but it is emergent in the communication between the two or three layers of brains, I guess, that we have going on. That we have the lowest level, which is talking every three milliseconds about where is the robot going next. You have the communication between the higher brain and then you have the higher brain itself. And, and how they all play together, they have their own sort of quirks or their own little bugs, as maybe a coder yeah. might say. And um, there's safety nets that still let the machine keep going even though something might not 100% work. And that's where a lot of these emergent behaviours can occur. And where I won't know where some of these are because it's hard to pinpoint is it in the higher brain or in the communication or the lowest level, and, or is it in a few of them altogether? Uh, the, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the next project could be not trying to tell the robot where to move its, the end of its finger, but mm. to tell it what to do at each of its joints. Because there's two ways to program, there's two ways to instruct a robot. One is through XYZ ABC yep. coordinates, you know, the position and the orientation of its, um, its tooltip. And the other is by just telling it um, what angle each joint has. Um, and it's you know, it's easy, easy to work one way. It's hard to work back in an inverse kinematic mm. way. Um, but if you're just um, designing something which is about the internal logic of its joint angles, um, it's going to produce radically different things because it's gone through some abstraction. Mm. I don't know. I mean, it probably makes <laughs> terrible things. But I mean, that's really yeah. interesting. I mean, yeah. I, I've been quite fascinated with the, the way that we use um, an exterior point of view or an interior point of view to determine movement. So, like, uh, sometimes I, you know, I've worked with dancers over the years and, or athletes too, you, you imagine yourself from the outside, so you see yourself performing a task, and then you also imagine yourself from the inside performing the task. And the calibration of those two things does something else mm -hmm. than you could do in either one of those cases. And it seems a little bit in, with the robots doing this is doing this in a much more facile way, isn't it? It's able to move from an exterior world view to an interior joint view quite, quite easily, almost seamlessly. It's seemingly schizophrenic because both sides don't necessarily talk to each other. Yeah, right. Or like they're they're almost it's listening to both of those points of view at the same time, but not communicating within each of them. And I think that comes back to the higher and the lower brain in that sense that. What would happen if we join those two things up in the robot? <laughs> They're at such different speeds, though. That's right. the other interesting thing is, and even how this work flows over speed is that we draw some 
work and then there's a time delay between when the robot might draw and even how fast does the robot draw its drawing. And then there's that iteration back and forth. And um, in, within the robot, I know there's at least three different speeds happening with that can't really talk to each other because of, because of that um, disconnection. And, um, and I think emergent behaviors form from those different those, speeds mm. ac accordingly. Mm. Mm. You're sounding mm. like a physician. Of robots. Were there yeah. some other yeah. questions? Yeah. You, had a, you had a question earlier. Did you get to ask your question? Yeah, go ahead. Give me the microphone. When we were back at RMIT, I was asking you a question one way around, and now I feel like reversing it. So, is is your robot teaching you to think? In yeah. a way that we perhaps didn't think before we invented robots. <laughs> I don't know about the last part, but I mean certainly it is a <coughs> it is a conversation that's happening because because um, we're having to think about these things that like why is it behaving like this? So it's raising some very interesting questions, and it is through the task it's it, it's got me thinking much more about what it is to actually draw something, mm. um, and yeah. So yes, I get. I mean we are. I think we are learning from the robot, but we're not learning how to draw a line better, like more and more precise. And I think it's in a funny sort of way. It is. It's kind of learning a little bit. Mm. Oh, it is. I think. Well, yeah. we've been. That'd be good. We've been well, evolving well, the robot yeah. to uh, to yeah. learn from yeah. from from both of you. Yeah. And I think maybe you've been learning how to communicate with it yeah. in a more transparent na nature. Yeah. Um, but that's because it needs transparency to understand what it's doing. So I mean, just, I is think it helping us to unpack how we think in a way we perhaps hadn't done before? Yeah, it certainly makes you think about different things. I mean, every time you're engaging with a system, because systems have, they're intertwined in some way, or they have some sort of feedback, or they're interlocked, and um, so you're forced to think through the system itself, and so I guess every time you're using a different type of system, you're, you, I don't know if you're thinking differently, you're definitely thinking about something through different ways. Like you're trying to, um, I guess, reconcile things that you're, you're trying to achieve, um, but you have to think about them not, you know, how those things are created through a whole series of different mechanisms, I guess. Yeah, I mean, to, to build on that, it, whenever you build a, a machine that's complex enough that it can be equal to but not the same as the world, you get a new understanding. So you have this this idea of expanded cognition or in, um, inactive cognition, where you you're actually thinking into an event space, and the things that you use to think into that are constantly changing how that's possible. So in the most sort of simple example, um, if you reread something that's complex like Proust, you you come to it and it's always new. Even though it's the, the words have not changed on the page, it's a complex enough system that it feeds back in, in entirely new ways each time. And so then multiply that exponentially in a, in a moving complex system. And I think that that's then the answer would have to be yes, 
it's teaching you all the time. And you have to kind of learn how to learn from it. That's probably the, the bigger task, is how do I get, how do I understand the information it's giving me, as opposed to, am I capable of learning from it? <laughs> well, we're, we're at time, so yeah. uh, unless there's a burning question, we, we can call it to a close, I guess. Thank you very much. Yeah, for th thanks for, for those of you who've arrived. Yeah. That's great. And thank you to yeah. our panel, yeah. Thea and Roland yeah. Yeah. and Jules, yeah. and for awesome. Roland's immense and enormous input and support for the project, because it wouldn't be possible without you guys and the robotics team to make that other part. We're the we're the performative part in the in the gallery, but there's all this stuff that had to happen behind yeah. to make that possible. So thank you for coming. Yeah. yeah? yeah. <laughs>